Um, I'm not going to stand up. I thought I would just sit since this is more the number that would be present at a seminar I teach at Hopkins or something. And um, it's just more comfortable for me. Um, this is just, it's interesting because my book just came out in July. Um, but I've so far managed to get by uh, over half a year without having to talk about it. Um, instead, I've been talking about two other projects we, that come out of the book in, in, in different ways. Um, the first one on disease maps, the earliest ones in China, actually, in East Asia, were from the 1870s, published in the Imperial Maritime Customs Bureau Medical Reports, which started in 1871. And actually, my book ends when those maps start. Well, it goes to the present to SARS, but I'm really interested in that. Once that epistemological shift to a very standard nosology or disease classification based here in England and William Farr and with vital statistics collected, um, things really, I think there's a major epistemological shift in the, at the end of the um, 20th century and also an institutional apparatus that goes with it to collect social stats or disease stats, mortality stats. And so the second book, or I'd say an article at this point, is about these disease maps and all that went into actually being able to create them. And it's really about the transformation um, in laboratory medicine, what happened with laboratory medicine. It's about Western medicine in China, which, believe me, I never thought I would ever write about. But it's an interesting angle for me to get at because of the um, new ways of visualizing the geography of disease. And so what you'll find um, in this introduction to my book, or overview of my book, is about what is this that I'm talking about, the ge geographic imagination in China, and why I ended up the subtitle of my book being Disease and the Geographic Imagination. Um, the second project is completely different, and it will, it will be the next book. So far, I'm, I'm um, published one article on it, and I have uh, another one uh, near ready to submit for review that I'll be talking about tomorrow with the Institute of Chinese Studies. And that's on Chinese arts of memory. Huge topic, barely touched and I need a, a heuristic device for it, which is the hand. So I'm really interested in how the body was used to memorize. I'm interested in what kind of knowledge was memorized by ordinary people, not the elites. Sometimes the elites, but I'm really interested in what ordinary people memorize and why that knowledge was valorized. You know, why it needed to be memorized. It wasn't acceptable to have a text. Well, maybe you'd have them behind you, but you would, you would have to have this type of knowledge memorized. And the, the dominant kind of practice and things that was me were memorized that I found by looking at these uh, actually illustrations of hands. Um, they go back to the 8th century in Buddhist texts, but they really start um, appearing in the almanacs and daily use encyclopedias of the 15th and 16th century, the main, um, is uh, fake calculation. And, and basically, um, very important is fake calculation. So not reading the lines of the palm for the fate of the individual, but using the <coughs> lines of the palm to remember the 12 terrestrial branches and then to do Bodza or the eight characters according to when you were born. Um, it's just very complicated ways. But the logic of how you work out the Bodza, for example, um, the people's big calculation, very common practice about the eight characters, was is written on the hands. And they and to the day to this day, diviners use the hands to memorize the, the logic of the eight characters. So that's the, the second project is on arts of memory. And how, and how did it come out of medicine? Well, the most complex doctrines for, for trying to predict the occurrence of epidemics were called Wuyuanyochi. Um, they start in the 8th century, and, and then you start to see uh, diagrams representing them in the um, late 11th century. And the first hand mnemonics in medicine are from 1099 Northern Song texts. Of course, the addition we have is 1332. But it starts with two hands, and the hands were used to memorize not something so simple as the 12 terrestrial branches or the zodiac system, but the 60-year cycle. And you can do it on your hands. Remember the exact order of the Chinese uh, six-year cycle. So that's what the second book is about. So far, I've managed to talk about one or the other of those two topics ever uh, up until this point, until Elizabeth asked me to talk about my book. And I suppose after it's been out about eight months, <coughs> Uh, maybe I can start to talk about it. So I thought, I thought I'd start to talk. I talk about the book. Um, I, I thought a lot of graduate. How many of you are graduate students? A, a few of you. So I've, it's actually tailored toward the process of discovery, and and how um, I, I use this point um, to to talk about how my 
ways of thinking about the historical evidence or the medical text really changed over the 20 years it took me to write a dissertation proposal and get the book published, or rather get a publisher to accept my book for publication. Um, so in 1990, when I first met Elizabeth, I was very interested in um, this text. Uh, first of all, I should say, I could point it, first of all, I should say, um, when I first met Elizabeth in 1990, I got a fellowship at the Needham Research Institute. Um, and I've been working with uh, Nathan Sivin on history of medicine in China. Um, actually, since I was 15 and took an acupuncture course, I wanted to read Chinese medical texts in the original because I thought Felix Mann's book on acupuncture was absolutely illegible and incomprehensible. And the woman teaching acupuncture in Minneapolis in the late 70s didn't know the stitch of Chinese. So that was part of my motivation. Uh, so by the time um, I worked with Nathan Sivan and I worked with Suna Khan on Qing history, and she had just published an article um, with Evelyn Rosky on uh, new research topics in the chain. And one of the items was um, epidemics. I think that she and Evelyn were thinking about more of a concrete history of epidemics in terms of government responses, and even, in this case, religious responses. Um, this uh, is an image that actually comes from my colleague um, Carol Benedict's um, work on the bubonic plague in the 19th century. And I ended up not talking about either, really, the, the governmental social responses or the religious responses, but strictly the, the epidemiological discourse in Chinese classical medical texts. Very, uh, nobody had done it, and it turned out to be a rather um, interesting, you know, you have to define your topics in a certain way, and uh, it ended up being worthwhile doing. So um, this is what most people think about when they think about the term Wen Yi. Um, you can see it in the top, Wu Yi, actually, uh, Wu Wen. Jershan are the five um, epidemic gods. Um, and what I um, wanted to talk to you about were these, uh, the process of transformation and discovery um, that occurred in the past 20 years since I started research on this. And um, I'll, uh, I wanted to first say that the book is structured on three threads. So in this presentation, I'm going to talk about how each one of these threads emerged and when, in terms of stitching, to use the metaphor of the book together, narratively. Um, the first one is the one I started in the 1990s, <coughs> the traditional epidemiology. I really wanted to do justice to the way Chinese thought about epidemics before Western medicine. So when I say I have no intention in my life to ever study Western medicine in China, I, I was firmly committed to um, uh, understanding uh, Chinese own indigenous response to China, to epidemics, um, without reference. I, don't, I didn't even want to compare with the West, so um, only rhetorically maybe to broaden the audience. Um, and then the, the second thread, the geographic imagination emerged much, uh, not that much later, but after I returned from um, a year in England and two years in China. And I'll tell you about what text I was reading, why I started, in that time I was thinking about it in terms of regionalism, but later I, I, I came up with the term geographic imagination. Other people use it too. Um, and then third, the, most, the last thread, the biography of a disease concept came much later. That came when I was really in basically 2006, um, when I was really putting it all together. And, and so anyway, each thread had its own period and had a history itself. But let's start with uh, where I was when um, Elizabeth and I first met. I was talking endlessly about this text and why. So in 1642, um, this uh, physician, Wu Yoshin, published a text. We know nothing else about him. Well, okay, we have his name at the end of a religious, of a stele at a, at a little temple that actually is, the stele is preserved in a dilapidated barn. Actually, I don't think either exists, but the stele still exists, but I think it's in the Sujo Museum now. Um, and this house is just a humble little, as far as like three, three room maybe, rural house in Dongting Mountain outside of Sujo. A rural physician, not contact connected at all as far as I could tell any other leads. Nobody else mentions him at the time. Okay, so we don't know anything about him, except that he was the head of his family. That's how he was um, uh, listed on this uh, stele, not you know, really walking distance from his house. Um, 
But he did something extraordinary. This is why I was interested in reading him. Because, uh, well, everybody, uh, the Chinese scholarship, all point to Wu Yoshin's treatise as being a, a transformative text in the history of Chinese epidemiology thereafter. And I wanted to understand him in context. And also Helen Dunstan had written an article on the late Ming epidemics in which she um, did a fine job um, uh, summarizing uh, what was innovative about his theories. So I started with him. And uh, this is just a, a major summary of things that are, that are unique to him. Um, up to his point, up to him, he wasn't the first one to think of it this way. Um, he did have a predecessor, his name was Zhang Jervi, in the late uh, 16th century, although he doesn't actually credit him with this idea. But that that's epidemics were odd in that they didn't follow the seasons always. You couldn't always explain them by um, aberrant seasonal qi, or different climatic qi. But up to that point, most physicians thought that epidemics that occurred at a, at a, um, amongst a widespread of people, young and old, um, male and female, uh, indiscriminate, because of an of a unseasonable qi. So a disorder in the kind of climatic order of things. And he said, no, it has nothing to do with that at all. It's something else, but we don't know what it is. So we called it zap qi, or heterogeneous qi. We also called it li qi, vegan qi, or yi qi, anomalous qi. Something that was as yet unclassified, but it was not sure qi, or um, uh, any kind of seasonal qi. Um, and the other thing he, he did was he did talk about there's a contagious quality. So there was, there, there was an undercurrent of an understanding that there was something outside of the configuration of seasonal qi that caused widespread epidemics and that people could spread it to, to, to each other. And there's a, a long, it's not as dominant in the classical um, Chinese medical tradition, but in the popular culture certainly um, there are ideas that when someone dies, you don't want the corpse chi to spread to you, um, that you don't want to touch the, the clothing is contaminated, and there's definitely intuitive knowledge of human-to-human -human transmission of disease. Okay. But up to this point, in the medical literature, there's not a sustained discussion of it. Um, he does mention it as um, when you have population density and you have a lot of people sick, that there's that possibility of being transmitted human-to-human. -human. It's not dominant. Um, mostly, he's still thinking in terms of a, of a Qi in, in the environment they don't yet know. And then, and then he says, um, he breaks, he says that we can't think about it as a type of cold damage. And up to that time, cold damage was the dominant, um, say, disease concept uh, that physicians thought about because the treatise on cold damage disorders dating to the second century um, was the first clinical, the foundation of Chinese clinical medicine. Okay. Um, and some of the earliest definitions of Wending, which you'll see when I talk about its childhood, come from that text. Okay, so what he also does, he does a move where he says these Wending, these, these warm disorders that were previously thought to be under the umbrella of the cold damage disease system, which is basically the idea that you get inflicted by cold in the wintertime. Imagine they don't have regulated heat. Um, but it doesn't manifest until the summer, the summer of the warm factor that, that stimulates it to come out. So it's a dormant, or what they call fuchi, latent qi. So that's how Wenbing was initially understood. And he says, no, that Wenbing has always been misidentified as a type of, of uh, um, I think I have it here, yes, as a type of cold damage, but in fact, it's, it's a wenyi, it's a kind of febrile epidemic, and we just don't know the cause yet. So I was very excited about this text. I'm not going to read this to you, but you can see in the very first sentence, which starts his book, he's completely refuting the idea that uh, this kind of epidemics are due to climatic factors. Okay? He says it's something else. Anomalous cheat. Okay? Right? And he says, you know, no one else has understood it. I'm the one that bombing discovered it. So it's, you know, found it a very exciting text, interesting text. Um, and here is another passage that gives you an idea of, of, of what he's thinking about. Um, and he's, he says at the very last line, um, he says, they did not really realize they had mastered butchering dragons. There was no use for it. They could not avoid calling a deer, that is, the wending or wenny. Febrile epidemics, a horse, cold damage. That's what he means by that. 
that they've always misidentified it in the past. And they just, until him, no one understood <coughs> that the underlying cause was something outside of the, the climatic seasonal cycle and configuration of the tree. Okay, so my first talk, first presentation, Association <coughs> of, Ameri of um, Asian Studies. Um, really big deal to get my paper talk accepted. Um, New Orleans, Angelo Leon, I remember clearly, was commentator, and this was, this was my argument, I thought. He, um, well, clearly it was a response to the academics of the time and the failure of his physici of physicians, his contemporaries, to help any other patients. And I didn't give you all the examples of all the different errors that he, he, he thought about in their treatment, but it, it, it was very clearly that. <coughs> I still stand by that argument. Um, I also argue that there was a political subtext, um, you know, that uh, his uh, own medical skepticism came out of a sense of the disintegration of the political order and the chaos of the time. Um, then I also linked it to, um, at that time I was reading a lot of um, Ben Elman's work, I would say he's a secondary advisor for me, and so um, I thought uh, very clearly his work was critical of um, well, I thought it was coming out of evidential scholarship, but his move was not to recover, actually, the original treatise on, on coal damage before later interpolations, which was what evidential scholars were doing, or the Hanshui Han learning movement was doing. Rather, his move was to uh, rely more on his own experience of failures that he perceived at the time. And so I argue that there's a, a, it's related to the skept, kind of skepticism that comes out of the evidential scholarship movement, but he's coming more out of um, an earlier development in medical history of relying on one's own clinical experience. So in the mid-16th century, with the, with the boom in publishing, you find um, the first time collections of physicians' medical case records. Um, and you find in his text, he uses... Um, nine medical cases as, as evidence to um, support his arguments. So I, I, I would still stand by that argument as well. But at the end of the talk, we'll, we'll come to, to why uh, I've changed how I think about him <laughs> the past 20 years. All right. And the next, um, the next thing I was doing was, was basically the response to Wheel Shane. Wheel Shane's response to the epidemics and the previous classical medical tradition, and then who followed up on him in the 18th century. Okay? And um, I found that um, his was one of the earliest disease monographs in the sense that he focused on febrile epidemics. And he was recognized as such in, for example, by the 1742 um, collection of um, uh, Sipu Chuan Shu, for example. The editors uh, were well aware that he was the first to focus on epidemics. And you see more texts published thereafter in the, in the late, it's late 17th, early 18th century that just focus on one disease. And there are some earlier, I would say it's about a 16th century, but not much before that. Um, so I consider it part of a new disease monographs, a new focus on local diseases, which you start to see um, uh, emphasized thereafter. And um, these are the big people of the, of the um, 19th century that are, are related to what they call the Wenbing Shui or the Wenbing Current of Learning. And then when, I'm, when I say they, I'm thinking of 20th century um, Chinese historians of medicine in China. And the first big compilation was done um, at the end of the um, 18th century by Wu Tang, published in um, 1811. But it's very interesting. He was actually a low-level um, uh, scribe for the Suku Chuan Shu project in Beijing. And so that's where he was first exposed to when he learned his text. Um, and he decided that just as when he learned, when uh, Wu, Wu Yoxing had written the first disease monograph on uh, epidemics, um, he should write the first compilation of all previous writings on Wenbing. Okay. And then the second major compilation um, uh, then actually integrates these uh, Wenbing writings with the Shanghai tradition. It's a major effort to bring the two strands together. Okay. Um, and then I, uh, the Qing draft history um, is the first time you have a, a native Chinese uh, retrospective history of this uh, Wenbing writers, from the Wu Yoxing to the, these writers of the end of the 19th century. 
So that's that's basically what I thought I'd write my dissertation about. That was enough. Um, and this is just a, a, a chart that kind of shows you who the main players were. I haven't talked about Yegwe and Shre Shre, but um, in, in all of these texts from the 19th century up to the um, Qing Shu Gao uh, kind of retrospective history, you have Rio Xing as being a founder, this new one being Shre Pai, um, Yegwe and Shre Shre being 18th century contributors from Suzhou. I should say that both of them are, uh, were not friends or colleagues or at all considered themselves to be part of the Shrepai. Shre Shre was a poet and didn't like people to know he practiced medicine at all. Okay. Um, and then um, and Zhang Nan uh, was, all, was one who put Ye Gui and Shre Shre together and Wu Tang and Wang Shusheng were the two figures I just mentioned who did this major synthesis. Okay, so these are the figures I was dealing with at the time. And my, my main argument was that the 20th century scholarship about uh, Wen Bing Shre Pai, or uh, Wen Bing, a school of uh, medical learning on warm disorders, was a retrospective construction that none of the players at the time knew each other or would have thought of themselves as part of the same school. Okay? But that's, that's, I wrote my dissertation, was called The Invention of Tradition. Shift. So, I came back from China, and I'm you know, deeply immersed in these texts. And I read this, this text, uh, which was um, cited in the uh, Qing Shi Dao, okay? but it's actually not mentioned in, in any of the um, histories of the, not many of, not, no, uh, of, of the Wending um, current of learning in modern China. <coughs> And he republished, except in the sense that he was the first to put these three authors together. He is mentioned, but the, an interesting aspect of his work is erased from the later history, from the Qing Shi Dao, 1928, up through the end of the 20th century. Well, the 1980s when I was working on this, 1990s. And um, he, he pulls these three authors together. Uh, writing on warm disorders, damp and hot disorders, etc., even cold damage, uh, because their methods were best suited for the diseases of the Jiangnan people. So I thought this was, an this was an interesting statement. Not only that, he includes these prefaces, um, which the first one, I, I won't go into detail uh, what, what they all say, but the, the prefaces are, are from different people associated with the, the editor, um, and the first one is what most interests me most because it was uh, written by a provincial official and he, he concludes his statement with this. And basically he's arguing that the cold, cold damage tradition is not appropriate for patients who live in the Sujo or Jiangnan region. And I had not read this in any of the 20th century histories of the Wendy current of learning um, and I I thought, well, this is very strange. And then he, he actually goes into more depth about this idea of Tucci. And I, I remember walking around the lake where I lived at the time in Minneapolis, and I thought, nobody has written about local Qi in Chinese medical history, and I'm sure this is a much broader phenomenon outside of medicine, and where is he getting this idea? And it's just shifted everything. I, I would have to say that it it added three more chapters to the book. <laughs> I only wrote one introductory chapter to the dissertation that introduces this, but by the time I finished my dissertation, I had not worked out the origin of this idea. It, it really took me a while to, to work it out, because it's not within medicine. It's, he's, he's quoting the artificial's record, which is a much you know, ancient text, um, about these ideas about if you shift, the, if an animal or a plant moves across the river at different sides, they change their form. And he says the same thing is true for humans. So then I, I went back to the classical texts of Wang Yin Aging, and there's quite a, a, deal, a good deal of, of regionalistic thinking in that text. And the two main ideas are of the Wu Fang, or the five directions, and the Dong Nan Shi Bei. Only later, in fact, do you get an idea of Bei Fang and Nan Fang, or North and South. It only comes into the medical literature, you know, directly related to medicine in the, in the late 14th century. Before that, the, the access, the geographic access, is always northwest, southeast, and they also use the five 
uh, five uh, directions. So let's give you some idea. Five directions. I'm not expecting you to remember the details, you know. And, and honestly, if you want my slides afterwards, you can have them too. But it's all in my book. Um, and it's very, it's very kind of a typology of the differences of um, people's bodies, the kind of diseases they have, what they eat, what they're living, you know, the, what kind of living situations they have. And most interesting, the, the bottom register is, is the regional um, origin of different uh, therapies that we now understand to be an integral part of what identifies Chinese medicine, okay? Acupuncture, moxibustion, these uh, herbal drugs, each one having a different origin in different regions. Now, Joseph Needham uh, really attempted to uh, say this is exactly where these, these uh, therapies came from, and that they were related to different local diseases, etc. He's looking at that this is more evidentiary of, of the phenomenon, but I, I think it's really more typology uh, than historic. Um, this is uh, I can't assume that all of you read Chinese, so um, this is an example of, a, I would say, a, a very paradigmatic, um, you see this from the majoring on uh, idea of how the northwest and the southeast differ. So this is the second um, geographic idea. And in the northwest, um, the qi is uh, much colder, and people um, like, therefore, to eat warmer foods, and What's interesting is their pores or their, their, their flesh, it's, it's like um, it's a, a textile or weaving metaphor. It's um, much tighter, and so they're more resistant to diseases from um, the outside. Okay? And um, their, their problem is that they can store up too much heat inside. Um, and later there'll be an argument that they can withstand, you have to use purgatives on them, because if they have something, it's really serious. Um, the opposite side of that in this, in this dichotomy, geographic dichotomy, is the northeast. And there you've got, you know, it's warmer, they prefer colder foods, um, their, their, their flesh is, is looser, so they're more susceptible to external invasion. And you cannot use purgatives on them, you have to use restoratives. This is just a, give you an example of, of a, the origin of this idea, and it carries through the medical text from thereafter. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is a, I'm, I'm going to, this is another, another textual reference of the same idea. And I just I put this in because um, this term that that the heaven is um, insufficient in the northwest and earth is um, incomplete in the south uh, um, east predates the uh, inner canon of the yellow emperor the medical text from the first century BCE. Uh, but here you see it um, being applied to what they consider to be right-hand do dominance, well, what we understand to be right-hand dominance and left-hand uh, weak is weaker, right? But they also argue that the uh, left ear and left ear is also more dominant than the right ear. <laughs> I won't go into it, but it's, it's a way of using the body to understand these uh, yin-yang relationships, to understand these differences, because the northwest is associated with this side of the body and the south east to this side of the body, north and south. All right, this is the first example I have of someone actually talking about there being a difference between southern and northern medicine. Now, there may well have been differences. I'm sure there were, in fact, between north and south. And other people doing some medical history <laughs> may actually tra trace this out, um, um, knowing the some text. Um, and I didn't. I, I have this text by... Uh, Darian, um, who's not at all, he's a Mongol um, official, not at all uh, medicine, but he had contact with a lot of physicians. And um, here he's got a discussion about how um, in the South you use um, different kinds of formulas than in the North. And then there's another text um, that uh, really starts to pull these, these geographic ideas together in 1502. And what I think is interesting is that they're trying to um, deal with a uh, a classical canon that's really quite, div uh, medical canon I should say, that's quite diverse. Um, and here he, he's talking again about the difference between south, uh, east, and northwest, and not north and south. Um, and I, I was in Taiwan in 2000, 2000, summer of 2001, and I found this illustration. And I think that it will help you visualize how the Chinese thought about this northwest southeast dichotomy and, and, how, and how it relates to the way they thought about 
um, people having uh, corporeal differences depending on the regions they lived in, and therefore, accordingly, you need to give different kinds of therapies to them. You, you know, purgatives in the north or cooling drugs in the north, um, warming ones in the, in the south, or disorders. So, um, this is the earliest version I have of it, but this is a, a little later one that I think is um, slightly, it's of the, uh, also late, it's early 16th century, also in the Shirlin Wangji from, well attributed in the Northern Song, although we don't have any editions until later, as you well know. There's a Yuan edition, but we don't have a, yeah, edition from, uh, and, I, and I'm using this uh, uh, Wangli edition, because I think it shows that it's more clearly. So here's a, the three-legged crow of the sun, um, basic yin-yang, um, the moon, the mortal rapid of the moon. And this phrase, heaven is collapsed in the, in the northwest, and uh, earth is incomplete in the southeast, we saw in the inner canon of the yellow emperor. I just uh, gave you the passages explaining the portal differences. And here you see it visually represented um, in terms of a more mountainous north west on the left side of the diagram, and then this watery southeast side. And uh, this, I just found this map, um, otherwise it would have gone in my book. And now you see a much better depiction of how it related to their understanding of, of uh, the landmass of late Ming, early Qing China. He uh, actually, you can see here Ming Chao. Yeah. Um, so what you see is the, the land mass and then the, the water, that being the northwest, this is southeast, right? And then different you know, geographic names. And then, very fascinating, the major constellations um, going around, um, heaven being represented by the circle, earth represented by the square, and then the uh, eight hexagrams, obviously cosmological significance. Um, so now I'm thinking, I'm going to write an article just on this image, unpacking it more. I, I should say, maybe you, you know somebody who's worked on this, that you work on, on uh, geography or geographic conceptions, if not the geographic imagination in some. But to my knowledge, no one has written on these maps before. And yet they start most, I want to say most, it's, they're the very beginning of the Shogun Guangji, the Song Encyclopedia, and they start this book as well, in terms of, they usually follow Zhou Duanyi's, um uh, depiction of the, I uh, shouldn't, shouldn't take the sides like that, but they usually follow this depiction of cosmological transformation from unity to yin-yang to the five phases to the, the myriad transformation. So that's earthly kind of analogy to the, the heavenly um, model of uh, that we see in these texts, but no one has written on it yet. So then I, I, I thought, that was the geographic imagination. And I've been writing about epidemiology and history of, of epidemiology in China. And the two are related in the texts themselves. Not always, but there's, a, there's these intersections. Um, and it wasn't until 2006 that I came, uh, I came on the, another kind of shift in my way of thinking, and, how, and especially how to structure the book on taking Wenbing uh, and looking at it as a history, uh, as a biography, taking the disease concept Wenbing and looking at it over the entire time of its history. And it's kind of crazy that it took me so long to think about it, because actually I worked with Charles Rosenberg at the um, University of Pennsylvania the same time I was working with Nathan Sivan in Chinese history of science and medicine and Sun Khan on Qing history. And he, you know, the year I started, had a big conference on framing disease, and I took history of disease courses with him, and actually this is a quotation from him, that a disease doesn't exist until it's named. In fact, all diseases, that the way we understand them, are disease concepts. But the problem we have um, is that often, especially in, in, bi in biomedicine, we equate, equate our understanding of a disease with the entity of a disease, rather than under that any understanding of disease is always a concept of the disease. And it changes over time. So, yeah, so you know this, right. But, and I do too. I was, I've been trained since the beginning, <laughs> this idea. Um, and you know this major distinction, which I'm not going to reiterate for you here. But it was actually Adrian Wilson's article that just made it very clear to me that I need to take a position. And of course my position is the historicist conceptualist approach. Because 
Um, then you can really get at how a concept changes over time, why it changes over time. I could fit Liu Xing in, into a much larger history which I was doing, but um, then I realized I needed to actually write about when it first emerged. And when you have Wen Bing born, let's say, and then you kind of the Yellow Emperor. It is, Wen Bing is not a popular category. It's a medical category. It's not like Wen Yi, which you find in the, in the ancient, you know, the Wen Yi, which is febrile epidemics. That that's, has a bit much longer history. It's much more complex. It includes the religious and the governmental. It's a, it's a governmental category. Wen Bing is not. Um, and so then when I, I, I came to this, I decided, uh, you know, I could write a life history of it. I think biography is an interesting metaphor to hold on to, and I realized I had to write two entirely new chapters. I had to really write about its, you know, birth, its childhood. It's, you know, I had to go through the Han, <laughs> totally skipped the Tang, sorry, <laughs> and the Sumjinyan period. But it gave me a, a heuristic device that limited my that, that, that gave me some power. I had to do a lot of legwork and writing work, but it gave me some power in terms of I'm not going to deal with any of the religious stuff because one being is it doesn't have a religious meaning. I'm going to do just what the medical effects say about one being over this time. And in each, each chapter that I ended up writing, I also had to integrate the two other things. The traditional epidemiology always had to come in, and the geographic imagination always had to come in. Now these, these are just uh, shifting uh, different ideas about um, disease, but um, and, and the Wending idea was dominantly on the physiological side um, rather than the ontological side, disease as a specific entity. Okay, I'm going to, again, I'm talking to anthropologists, so you can see um, another distinction that I found very useful is between ontological reasoning and physiological reasoning, so I could really um, situate the, the Chinese discourse more on the side of the syndrome, individual treatment, um, for its early history. So, when you're writing about a disease concept in China, and there are other disease concepts that are really interesting too, um, but what's, what's often happened in Chinese medical history is that they've, they've taken on a one-to-one -one correspondence with Western biomedical terms. So I've given you some examples here, which I won't reiterate. But one thing never does. I mean, it's sometimes, I guess the closest would be it's acute infectious diseases, but it never takes on uh, uh, identity that has a direct one-to-one -one correspondence like, like uh, Shui and plague. Well, actually, Shui is, in, is a late 19th century neologism, so that doesn't, but Ma Feng, very ancient disease concept that then becomes leprosy. And um, Angela Liang's book on leprosy, if you're interested in this topic, is brilliant. It's another, bio I would say, biography of a disease concept through Chinese history that's, um, that I was very happy came out before mine. Um, so I, I, I very much resist this retrospective diagnosis. And I looked at one thing over time and its life history. It, it gave the book, uh, a, a, I hate, you know, I think maybe the weakness of the book, 2,000 years, oh no, I can't believe you did that. But in fact, SARS is a type of Wen Bing. I had to bring it up to the present, and it's very much alive. There's no obituary in my book. Wen Bing is practiced by anybody who studies Chinese medicine. And it was hugely discussed in, in, uh, during the SARS epidemic as relevant for the present for treating acute uh, infectious diseases. And I ended up publishing an article on, on why is it that that fact is, and that 50, over 50% of the patients in China were treated with uh, Wen Bing therapies. For SARS, during the SARS epidemic, where that fact was completely missed in the Western press, although it was widely discussed in the Chinese press. So you can see that was this transformation 2002, 2003, and in, in terms of, you know, I, had to, I thought I should bring in SARS, and everybody told me, no, you're a Ming, Ming Qing historian. It's bad enough you went back to the Ming, but don't go to the present. And, and I ended up in 2006 when I, when I decided I was going to do a biography of, of uh, Wembing, that I, I couldn't not deal with the SARS situation because I could talk about how how this disease concept persists in the present. What you know, it's, it, and the main argument I make is that it's a form of resistance to the narrowing of our understanding of illness and the legitimating types of treatments to treat that that happens in biomedicine. And it's it's very clear that there's much wider possibilities for treating patients in the integrated medicine that's sponsored in mainland China. Because uh, outside of mainland China, Taiwan, Singapore, 
other areas in East Asia where um, sorry, said they didn't use integrated treatment. Okay, so there you see why it took me so long. It's still done. <laughs> okay, so let me uh, wrap up on some ideas um, uh, in terms of how to think about epidemics um, and and how um, the SARS epidemic is is thought in Western biomedical terms very differently than the way the Chinese practitioners who, who use Wenbing treatments and Western medicine, by the way, thought about Wenbing. I'm just going to uh, wrap this up and then we can go into discussion so you can see why I, I included SARS as my, as my epilogue or my final chapter in my book. So the, the, when, the understanding of coal damage and one vein was largely um, the first two um, explanations for epidemics, configurationists and predispositionists. But at any time throughout human, especially European and in Chinese history, there's always the contagionist understanding too. There, Charles Rosenberg has a, a very influential article on these three ways of understanding epidemics. They could be simultaneous in one thinker, but usually they, they some took one side or another side. Um, and the configurationist is this idea that there's, in, in a Chinese case, seasonal qi, or something in the environment. Um, malaria comes from bad air. Okay, so that's a very, the earliest ideas of malaria were a configurationist idea. Um, but there's always a sense of why do some people get sick and other people don't get sick? Well, it's, it's some kind of something with the individual constitution. They're stronger, they take better care of themselves, or they're male, or they're female, or they're older, or younger, lots of different ideas about why some people get sick and others don't. And that came down to a way of understanding that is predispositionism. And the contagionism is the idea I talked about in the beginning about human-to-human -human, um, transmission of uh, something, a single cause or a pathogen or um, some kind of contaminated chi in the Chinese case. Oh, I see. Um, so. In the SARS case, uh, I can laugh, I'm sorry. In the SARS case, the contagionist was completely emphasized um, and um, not the predispositionist or the configurationist. Um, but the Chinese medical practitioners were, I would say, bilingual in the sense that they understood that there is a, okay, by the time they very quickly, by the way, discovered the civic cat and the coronavirus as being the cause, but they also integrated predispositionist ideas as well as configurationist ideas. That there's, there's a shift, there's a, a cold snap actually in Guangdong, which made people more susceptible. That's, that's the main argument. And they used you know, s s um, uh, these uh, wending treatments as well as um, steroids and other kinds of you know, things, mental uh, oxygen and things like that for the patients. All right, so I'm going to end with the biography. <laughs> And we'll just, I'll just take you through quickly through the biography. And then in the last, uh, um, do I end at six? Sorry, ten minutes? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. So the, I'll, the last um, point will be how my views changed about the um, epidemiological crisis and epistemological change of the 17th and 18th century. Okay? We'll end where I, I started the talk. So, um, Wendy was born in the inner canon of the Yellow Emperor in the first century BC. <laughs> um, and these are the two ideas. Um, it actually was uh, a type of um, uh, heart disease. Okay? And, and again, I want to read these out to you, but they're, they're two very different ideas. One is, is this uh, um, very close idea to epidemics, you know, it's very acute onset, um, and, and from the very beginning it was the idea that it was related to the weather. Okay. And the second one um, is, it, is that it was um, actually something that was carried from the winter, a latent chi from the cold that then was manifested in the summer, wending or in the, I mean in the spring, wending or in the summer, rubing. Um, it's childhood. So that would be the treatise of um, coal damage. It's the first text to um, discuss Wenbing, and it takes the second definition, not the first, from the inner canon of the other emperor. And it takes the idea that it's um, a type of coal damage acquired in winter, and it manifests in the spring or summer. Okay, and that's 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 the de definition that carries 
um, through the coal damage tradition up to um, 1643, 1642 when the Lintrius that started my whole research in the first place. So there's, um, uh, the coal damage treatise was actually not very influential for the first millennium of its existence. Um, I, there is a graduate student now working with um, Bob Himes at Columbia University who wants to prove me wrong on this, and Asaf Goldschmidt, and you may well, you may well. Um, but for the most part, um, the evidence, uh, I'm, t I'm taking Asaf Goldschmidt's um, word on this, is that it, it, it didn't become widespread. Maybe it was influential amongst physicians, but it wasn't widespread until the Northern Southern government published it. Um, and it published it in a different form than it had been received. It was split for the first time into the coal damage treatise and then another text. Okay? Before that, it was the coal damage, the treatise on coal damage and miscellaneous disorders. Now, these are things that are relevant, really. But as I argue that as soon as it was published, you have criticisms of it. And actually, you see this with other kinds of publications of the period, too, like the um, first uh, Materia Medica associated with the Shemnon, the Divine Husband, and was criticized, actually, by Jushi for, for being um, uh, northern and not really taking into consideration the new territories in the south. On the whole damage treatise as well. And, and um, a similar movement at the time was that uh, there's been too much emphasis on coal and wind as pathogenic factors and a, and a movement more toward thinking of fire as something that was been missing in the classical canon and needed to, and was actually more um, detrimental to people's health. So then you have a distinction um, in, in the 11th and period on, especially the 12th, 13th century, on these fire diseases, the state control damage. Um, and in the main, I, I argue that this, this regionalism you see in the 12th, uh, 13th century develops even further, and you have this geographic imagination of the five regions from antiquity, the northwest, southeast, also that, that axis from antiquity, and then this new north and south division from the, the late 14th century. Um, for the first time, you have the cold damage being associated with northwest. And, and the warm diseases with the southeast. So that's when you, that's when the, you know, it's not in this late 19th century text in which I first saw it. It was in this uh, um, uh, 17th century, actually, we get that distinction. Now I'm going to conclude. Remember we started with the winning one? Okay, I thought um, it was a response to epidemics. Definitely it's a critique of contemporary physicians at the time. But I, uh, you might not remember that first slide, but I really thought it related to a sense of imminent collapse of the name. That there's absolutely no political anything in this text. A lot of, uh, there are several other officials at the time who wrote about these same epidemics, which mean, both of whom I'm thinking about make very clear connections that the epidemics are omens of the, of the um, corruption of the, of the name. They're very clear about the political connections. Liuxing is not at all. He's not thinking in that way at all. So I think that that argument I made about the political influencing the medical skepticism was absolutely wrong in my first presentation at the AAS. But instead, my, my intuition about it being related to uh, looking at, at clinical experience, emphasis on case studies, was right. Though it wasn't directly coming, he doesn't actually emphasize his cases as much as he emphasizes that this is anomalous chi. And I, I discovered in my research that there are two other disease monographs um, dealing with uh, diseases from the far south, the site here, um, the, the, um, and, and both of them very much talking about this, uh, uh, these regions as being left out of the medical canon. They hadn't been discussed before. These are new diseases. He even goes so, so far as to say it didn't exist before um, uh, the, the mid-16th century. And it's a new disease, and, and so this is really, you know, he doesn't s specifically cite these two authors, but his use of, of, of anomalous chi is very much participating in this broader discourse of anomalies that these two physicians also participate in. So he's not actually directly responding to evidential scholarship at the time. It's more this discourse on anomalies. Well, that was a major shift. And the second is one thing's adult. So I said that the um, 18th and 19th centuries 
I emphasize this, you know, almost linear development of a new um, uh, current of learning and webbing, and my, my argument was basically simple, that it had been a retrospective um, construction of 20th century historians in China, and not something that the, the authors themselves thought they belonged to. But what I, what I argued here was that there was a very clear tension between universalism and regionalism, and the regionalism had been completely written out in the 20th century histories, from the Qingshu to the 20th century. And so what I ended up doing in the chapter in which I deal with these transformations in the 18th century, I chose four representative texts. The two that I mentioned, um, I put you, are the ones highlighted by everybody who knows anything about Wenbing Shuapai. And I should highlight that Wenbing studies is one of the four main categories of possible Chinese medicine that you'll find in all of the traditional Chinese colleges that were established by Mao in 1954. And it's the only one that did not exist before the 19th century. All the other ones, Shanghai, Neijing, um, and uh, I can't remember, are from the Han. Okay, I'll remember the third one, probably not this session. And the R I have here are the texts that sometimes are cited because they, 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 they reproduce the texts of uh, Ye Gui and Xue Shengbai, who are important 18th century representatives of the, of the London current of learning. But they're, they're very explicit regional approach that this is medicine for Jiangnan patients and for Southerners is, is left out completely of that history. And so I, I talk about this tension in the 19th century between universalism and regionalism. The authors have very different audiences. Um, the, those who are writing on a universalist approach were highly educated elite physicians who were appealing. And the first one was, was working on the Sipichuan Shu project, Wutang. Um, and the other two are very local physicians, local. Um, and, and in the first case, um, he, not the second case, 1878, he is personally related to one of the physicians that he's writing about. Okay, so they're appealing to, I think, uh, a regional discourse to argue that their collection is, is and their approaches to medicine and their therapies are more uh, appropriate for their local patients. So, uh, the book uh, that will end there. Um, Nothing on SARS. Oh, there's a lot on SARS, but we've run out of time. <laughs> okay, there's lots on SARS, but I just leave that. I, I did mention SARS and, and why I, the book goes into SARS. Because um, it's, well, just to, to end about SARS, I think it's so interesting that it's the it's considered to be the first emerging disease of the 21st century um, from the Western biomedical perspective, and from the Chinese medical perspective, it's a has a very long history. They've seen it many times before. <laughs> All right.